Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Brandis, and I serve here as one of the pastors. And uh, each and every year, I forget just how much I love Palm Sunday, right? I love seeing those kids come up and down the aisles. I love getting to play a traffic controller down here in front and, and make sure they go the right way. And, and I just I absolutely love it. So uh, you may or may not remember, we sent out an email, and, uh, and Bill said it last week in his sermon. But, but this week, this morning, this sermon uh, is about... Well, it's about how those kids got here, and, and, and not from downstairs upstairs, but uh, this morning's sermon is about sex, uh, and if you're starting to feel awkward, um, just want you to know that my parents were here at 9 a.m. to hear this sermon, so <laughs> I think I still win. I don't know. Um, but I do want to let you know, right, that we do have, you saw the kiddos, right? We've got fantastic children's ministry programming happening right now in our lower level for birth through fifth grade. If you're sixth grade or older, you're stuck with me, sorry, um, but just an FYI on that. And right now, I'm, I'm going to pray uh, because we all need God's help for, for what, about, what is about to happen. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you um, that you do help us when we ask. Uh, and we need your help each and every week as we open your word. We are not worthy to understand it, um, but you are gracious to, to give us the gift of understanding, Lord, and your infinite wisdom. So we pray for that again this morning and ask that I would get totally out of the way so that what you have for us can reign supreme in this place here and now. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that you've noticed, as have I, that there is no shortage of conversations in our world today happening about sexuality. Everywhere you look, there seems to be another conversation, another article. Uh, and here's one that, that fascinated me recently. It's from The Atlantic, and it's titled, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? That's a burden to be, if you're wondering. <laughs> here's how the article begins. These should be boom times for sex. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried adults is, quote, not wrong at all, is at an all-time high. And then the article goes on to list reason after reason why these should be boom times for sex, concluding with this, our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation, but despite all of this, American teenagers and young people are having less sex. And it's not just young people either. Broader research into the sex lives of all Americans shows that everyone is having less sex than before which I think leads to a really important question this morning. Why? Why does it seem as though sex is on the decline? The articles and research that I looked at offered numerous suggestions, but I wonder about another that wasn't mentioned. You see, I wonder if our culture's offer of the incredible benefits of unlimited sexual freedom is a classic example of overpromising and underdelivering. Overpromise, underdeliver. I mean, we've all been to a party that was way overhyped, haven't we? You pull up outside, you're excited, you're anticipating great things, and then you walk in only to find out that everything is a major bummer. You walk in only to find out that you're at a Michael Scott hotel party. <laughs> I think I've got a picture. There it is. And I just wonder. Isn't it possible that our culture's approach to sexuality is a bit like an overhyped party, promising an amazing payoff, but in the end, failing to deliver? Might there be a better way? 
Well, here's what I believe we're going to discover in our passage this morning from Genesis chapter 2. Sex is God's good idea. Sex is God's good idea. And as we unpack this statement, I also believe that we are going to come across and discover two surprising truths within God's design for sexuality. Two surprising truths. And, And here's the first one. You don't have to have sex to be fully human. You don't have to have sex to be fully human. Now, you might think that this is an odd place to begin a sermon on sexuality, but let's look back at our passage together, Genesis 2, and we'll start in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, you might still think this is a strange starting place because the point is not yet obvious, but I believe that if we step back just a touch and look closely at the verses surrounding Genesis 2.18, that we'll see what I'm getting at. And first, we need to back up to Genesis 2.15, which reads, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we've talked about this verse quite a bit already in this series. It's the cultural mandate. It's our invitation from God to join him in his good, creative work. It's where we see that we were created with work in mind. And very importantly, Genesis 2.15 frames the backdrop to this verse, to the very first verse of our passage this morning. So So keep that in mind, and then let's keep reading our passage, verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And I wonder if you see it here too in verses 19 and 20 in addition to verse 15, right? Adam's vocational task of gardening with God, we find it immediately following Genesis 2.18 as well as before it. So I find this incredible that one of the main reasons why it is not good for man to be alone is that there is a lot of really good work to do and really important work to do. That's one of the reasons why it's not good for man to be alone. But you see, when we read Genesis 2.18, we too often strip that part out of it and instead only read the verse through a romantic relational lens. You see, we tend to think that God got really sad really bummed out when he saw that Adam's relationship status on Facebook was single. And so he decided to do something about it. Oh, poor Adam doesn't have a girlfriend, a wife, a fiancé. I better do something about that. But that's not what happened, is it? Church, whether you're here this morning as a single person, as someone who is in a dating relationship, as someone who is engaged, or whether you're here as someone who is married, all of us need to hear this. The Bible does not teach that you were created to find a spouse. The Bible does not teach that you were created for romance, ultimately. The Bible does not teach that the chief aim of human existence is to find and have your own personal love story. It just doesn't. Now, now please hear me correctly. The Bible does teach very clearly and very beautifully and importantly, the Bible does teach that each and every one of us is created for relationship. Relationship. 
We were created in the image of a relational God. And so when God says that it is not good for man to be alone, part of it, of course, means that there is a relational deficit for Adam that must be paid. And it's true, and we see very plainly in our passage this morning, that the way that that relational deficit was paid for Adam was by the creation of his wife, Eve. And further, it's true that that marriage is an incredibly important institution to God that he uses in many people's lives, including my own. But we have to see this as well. The institution of singleness is not part of Genesis 3. Singleness is not a result of our rebellion against God. Singleness is not a result of our sinning against God. In the mind of God from the very beginning, both marriage and singleness are equally viable and important stations in life. Which which means, if I can for just a moment say, single people that are here today, that are here with us. We need you. We need you. We are so glad that you are here with us and we would not be who we are without you. And I also want to say, by way of repentance and apology, the church broadly and this church specifically has too often failed you and not served you in the ways that you need and deserve. Forgive us. Forgive me. We have too often idolized marriage and family to the exclusion of you and your needs. We have too often flattened singleness, not recognizing that each of your stories is unique and beautiful to God. We have neglected to remember our first surprising truth that you do not have to have sex to be fully human. Genesis 1 and 2 don't exclude single folks, and we shouldn't either. Because again, notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say it's not good that Adam doesn't have a sexual partner. He doesn't say it's not good that Adam doesn't have romance in his life. No, he says it is not good that Adam is alone. He said it's not good that Adam isn't experiencing human intimacy. Intimacy. That's a really key word for us this morning. Because you see, deep down, that is what each of us is desperate for. Intimacy is what each of our hearts beat for. It is what each of us longs for. Ultimately, it's not sex that we're after. It's intimacy. It is the joy of knowing someone fully, and it is the joy and peace of being fully known. And sex is just one of the many ways in which we experience intimacy in this life, which is why we had to start with this for our first surprising truth. You don't have to have sex to be fully human. We had to start here. We had to. I mean, think about this with me, right? Jesus. Jesus, the most fully human person to ever walk this earth. He was both 100% God and 100% man. He's the most fully human person to ever walk this earth because he never once strayed from God's design. And yet, and this is the incredible part, Jesus never married. Jesus never had sex. Do we need more convincing than that? Here's one more. This surprising truth that you don't have to have sex to be fully human is why it is okay, more than okay, 
in fact, that one day, none of us, none, none of us will ever have sex again. And I'm willing to bet that you probably haven't stopped to think about that in a while or, or maybe ever. But it's true because Jesus himself clearly says in Matthew twenty-two thirty that in the new heavens and in the new earth, when he, Jesus, has made everything new again, Jesus says, they will never marry nor be given in marriage. And folks, no marriage means no sex. Now, maybe that sounds terrible to you. Uh, you might be thinking right now, goodness, no sex in heaven. I'm not sure I really want to go there now that I know that. But on this point, author C.S. Lewis is so helpful. He describes a young boy who loves chocolate more than anything in the world. And upon being taught the beauties and pleasures of sex, the boy asks, in all seriousness, can you eat chocolate while you have sex? And the kind adult leading the conversation might wrestle, right? I'd wrestle with the right answer. What's the right answer for the young boy? Thinking along these lines. In vain, you might tell him, that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. You see, the boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We, of course, are in the same position. We know the sexual life we do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. No room for it. Isn't that incredible? It almost sounds like it couldn't be true. But what if it is? You don't have to have sex to be fully human. But we do need to keep moving because we still have quite a bit of ground to cover. And Jesus' link between marriage and sex in Matthew twenty-two thirty introduces us to the next surprising truth about God's design for sex. Here it is. You do have to be fully married to have sex. So, so you don't have to have sex to be fully human, but we cannot miss point two. You do have to be fully married to have sex. Now, on the face of it, this isn't functionally true. People who aren't married have sex with one another all the time. But this morning, we are discussing, we are unpacking the surprising truths that we discover within God's design. And folks, like it or not, agree with it or not, this is God's design. And we discover this ever so plainly within our passage for this morning. Let's look back again at Genesis chapter 2. We'll start in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, so overwhelmed, he bursts into poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, in these verses, we, we find clearly, clearly on display God's design for human sexuality. Here it is. Sex should only occur between one man and one woman who are united together in marriage for life. 
Sex should only occur between one man and one woman who are united together in marriage for life. And I know, I know that seems old-fashioned. It seems regressive. You might be thinking, Paul, it's, it's 2019. Haven't we moved past this already? I mean, get with the times. But let me point you back to just one verse from what I just read. Let's keep it on the screen there. I want, I want you to see this with me this morning. Let's throw that last slide up again. Maybe you noticed this verse when I was reading it because this verse struck me this week as I was studying, preparing for this message. It's verse 25. It's the last sentence on the screen. It bowled me over this week, church. And the man and his wife, they were both naked. And yet what? And yet what? They were not ashamed. No shame related to their sexuality. Not even a little bit. Is that your story? I know it's not my story. That's not my story. Maybe it's not yours either. I imagine all of us, all of our lives, have moments of deep shame with regard to our sexuality, and these moments feel like they can haunt us forever. But you have to hear me this morning. God did not create us to experience shame with regards to our sexuality, that's not His design. But what happens is when we sidestep God's design, what we're doing is we are throwing the door wide open. We're throwing the door wide open and we are inviting shame to come inside and have a seat on the couch. So so go with me for a second. What if, and I know it's a really big if, but what if... God's design for sexuality is actually the pathway to eliminating the shame that we so often feel in this arena. What if God's design isn't limiting and restrictive, but is actually incredibly freeing and liberating? What if? What if? Let me clue you in on why I think God's design is set up the way that it is. Sex is more than just physical. Sex is more than just physical. It is physical, but it's more than that too, isn't it? Pastor and author author Andy Stanley writes in his brilliant book for New Rules, New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating. This book was so helpful to me as I prepared. He writes this, sex isn't just physical. Anytime you make a statement that includes the phrase, my body, you acknowledge there's more to you than just a physical body. There's a my in there somewhere. And as perhaps you've already discovered, your sexuality is inexorably linked to the non-physical part of you. I agree with them. And so what I've noticed is that because sex isn't just physical, then it also carries with it incredible power. Incredible power. I wonder if you've experienced that. Maybe you've seen that power play out in real life. I wonder if someone that you love or, or maybe you yourself has been deeply wounded by someone who used sex as a weapon. Or I wonder if someone that you love has come to you and said, I need to tell you something that I've never told anyone before and then proceeded to trust you with the story of sexual assault or sexual exploitation. Or I wonder, 
I wonder if someone you love or maybe you yourself has found themselves trapped in a sex-related addiction. Because sex is more than just physical. Granting it, affording it, giving it incredible power. And this is true because every time sex occurs, a one flesh uniting takes place. And we read about this in our passage this morning. It's verse 24. A man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. In sex, two people become one. Where there was two before, there is now one new creation, a unified oneness that didn't exist before. This is incredibly significant, and it has remained at the core of God's design for sexuality since the very beginning. And we can trace this principle all throughout Scripture as well. We encounter it on page 2 in our Bibles, in Genesis 2, our passage for this morning, and then we see, we see Jesus himself affirming this one flesh principle when he teaches on marriage in Matthew 19. And we can keep going, too, because the Apostle Paul picks up upon this idea and he applies it to one of the many sexual problems that the church in Corinth was experiencing. A bunch of them were sleeping with prostitutes and then saying that it wasn't a big deal at all because God will forgive me and grace will increase. That sounds like a problem. And so how does Paul address it? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6.16, he says, Do you not know? Doesn't everybody know? That he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. And do you know what I love about that? Paul is taking an ancient text that was thousands of years old and he was applying it to the current situation in Corinth. Because Genesis 2 was written a long time before 1 Corinthians 6. Do you know what we're doing this morning? We're looking at an ancient text and discovering by the power of the Spirit what relevance it might have for our sex lives today. This vitally important one flesh reality, I wonder if we've taken time to consider what it actually points to. Why is this the case? Well, Well, this one flesh reality points to the inseparable union between God and His chosen people. It's a picture of that. And that sounds a little strange, right? That marriage and sex point to that, but but that's what it points to. Sex is but a picture of the fact that God will never abandon his people and he is inseparably united to them. And what this reminds us is that sex is not at the center of the universe. God is. Because sex points somewhere. We, we learned that in Genesis 1, didn't we? In the beginning, sex? No. In the beginning, God. God is at the center of the universe, and sex and marriage, they point to the fact that God will never abandon his chosen people. And this is why sex and marriage are given to one another, and why they are not meant to be separated. Andy Stanley, again, writes so brilliantly about this one flesh uniting power of sex and about what happens to us, to ourselves, when we ignore this reality, when we shove this reality to the side. And here's what he says. Sex has a uniting quality. It's because two become one. It's a uniting quality. And he says if you apply, remove, reapply, and remove an adhesive, it begins to lose its adhesiveness. 
Well, the same thing happens sexually. Every time you have sex with a different partner, you apply, remove, and then reapply this powerful but somewhat fragile relational uniter. Eventually, your sexual experience will begin to lose its stickiness. And the way you'll know this is happening is because sex will begin to lose its significance to you. So what's the way forward? What is our way forward given this surprising truth that within God's design, you do have to be fully married to have sex? Well, there's much that could be said. There's much that could be said, but let's look this morning at just two implications. Here's the first. Sex within marriage, yes. Sex within marriage, yes. I mean, we've talked at length about how the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship is required for sex, but, but we can't forget that sex is vital for a healthy marriage. It is a beautiful covenant renewal ceremony given to us by God. It's important for married couples to have sex regularly because this will physically remind them of the spiritual oneness that they enjoy together. Now, of course, of course, sex within marriage is still difficult. There is still brokenness and challenge here, too. Because isn't it true that we, we carry all of our brokenness with us into marriage? Not, not just sexually, but otherwise. Saying I do does not make me perfect. I know that's true. We carry our sexual brokenness with us into marriage, and saying I do doesn't fix it. In fact, I think one of the worst disservices that we've given our young people is to underteach this truth or to avoid it altogether. Instead, what we've too often done is preach a sexual prosperity gospel that promises them unlimited sexual fulfillment when they get to marriage. We say, we say, just wait. Just hang on. Just wait. And then when you get married, everything will be great. But too often, it isn't. If you're here this morning and you're experiencing sexual problems within your marriage, know that you are not alone. And be aware, too, that sexual problems could be a bit like the check engine light in your car. A sign that something might be wrong underneath the surface. Author and pastor Tim Keller, in his incredible book, Meaning of Marriage, writes, Unless your marital relationship is in a good condition, sex doesn't work. So be very careful to look beneath the surface. Because a lack of sexual compatibility might not really be a lack of lovemaking skill at all. It may be a sign of deeper problems in the relationship. And it is often the case that if those problems are addressed, the sexual intimacy will improve. And church, friends, if, if you're here this morning, if you're experiencing problems in your marriage, sexually or otherwise, we want to know about that. We want to help you. So, so talk to a pastor. Send us an email. Write out a prayer request guard. Do not stay isolated. We want to know. We want to help. Sex within marriage is a, a yes from God. But within that yes, there are still some no's that absolutely need to be observed. Any form of sexual abuse is a major no. Even within the yes of sex within marriage. With your spouse, no still means no. And we would also add 
that it's inappropriate to withhold sex as a punishment or, or to use it as a bargaining chip because that is not how sex was designed. Sex is a gift from God to us, and so sex within marriage functions best when we remember that as its origin point. You see, sex has incredible potential to be very self-focused, but it will function best when you focus more upon what you can give your spouse than upon what you can get from them. It's a gift. Use it that way. Okay, sex within marriage. Yes, that's our first implication. Here's our second. Sex outside of marriage. No. Sex outside of marriage. No. And folks, the very first thing that we need to see when we look at this implication, the very first thing that we have to to realize and acknowledge is that this is for your own good. It's for our own good. And I know it might not feel that way. It probably seems restrictive, limiting, difficult, frustrating. But God is not random. He is not arbitrary. He is the greatest designer to have ever existed. He is measured. He is intentional. God doesn't make mistakes within his design. And so when God builds something, it is truly best and it is truly for our good to adhere to the building plans, to adhere to the design plans, even if it seems like we might know a better way. Here's Andy Stanley again on this point. When we rip sex out of its divinely designed relational context, which is marriage, we hurt ourselves. Sexual sin is like no other sin because your sexuality bridges body and soul. When you sin sexually, you literally sin against your true self. Sexual sin always eventually equates to self-inflicted pain, which is why sex is for married people, not because God is against sex, but because God is for you. Do do not dampen that truth this morning. Do not drive right on by. Don't miss that. God is for you. And so, yes, sex is given exclusively to the marriage relationship, but that is for our own good. It's for our own good. And we also need to say that, that this no from God... This, this no from him stands for all forms of sex outside of marriage. All of them. Hey, to begin a list, we, we would say that all of these, all of these are outside of God's design. Adultery. Having sex with someone not your spouse. Por- pornography. Whether you find that on your phone or your laptop or just scrolling through Netflix. Pornography outside of God's design. We would say that sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or even your fiancé is outside of God's design. And we would say that same-sex sexual relationships are outside of God's design. Now, now very clearly, right? Very clearly, we could spend an enormous amount of time on each and every single one of those topics. And we could add more to the list too, but, but this morning we just don't have time. And I'm not avoiding them. We're not avoiding them. I promise you we're not avoiding it. 
We want to have these conversations. In fact, we've already written extensively on these topics and more. We have a white paper titled Exploring God's Design for Sexuality. You can find that very easily on our website, the resources tab. It'll be right there. And again, reach out to us. We, I would love to buy you coffee to discuss these items more. But with our time, I do want to focus in on one from the list. And not by way of singling it out as somehow worse than any of the others. Not at all. All sexual sin outside of God's design receives an equal no from Him with no weight in any direction. So, so we could have chosen any off this list for deeper examination to be sure. But let's take a closer look at sex prior to marriage with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or even your fiancé. Now, the logic I often hear likens this decision to take this step to that of buying a car. I mean, something along the lines of, I mean, you wouldn't make that sort of financial investment without a test drive, right? But you see, the problem with that line of thinking is that the foundation of a successful relationship is not chemistry or compatibility. Those are important, but they are not the foundation. No, the foundation of a successful relationship is commitment. It's promise. Because you see, the truth is that the person that you marry over time is going to change a lot. So how do you know that you will be compatible with the future version of your spouse? You don't. You don't. And that's the importance of the promises that you make to one another, the vows that you commit to. Sexually test driving your boyfriend or girlfriend is a bad idea because of all that we've already said about sex so far. It's more than just physical. It includes a one flesh uniting each and every time with it that carries incredible power. And today's hookup culture wants to ignore that truth, and we're paying the price to the great harm of ourselves. Maybe you've experienced that. As hard as it might be in this cultural moment, might it be worth considering another way? Might it be worth considering the benefits of embracing God's no to sex outside of marriage? Might it be? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're dating the person that you're going to be married to. Perhaps you're already even engaged to one another. Now, you might be thinking, surely this no doesn't apply to me, to us, since I'm with the person that I'm going to marry. But to that, I would say that there is a major difference between vowing to vow and actually vowing. There's a major difference between promising to promise and actually promising. <laughs> You see, something mysterious and significant happens on your wedding day. Have you looked at this building recently? We do a lot of weddings here. And I have the blessing and the privilege of getting to be a part of a ton of them. We move this podium out of the way. And I stand here, right? And the couple, they stand there. And until the moment where they vow to one another, have you noticed? They don't look at each other. That's intentional. They're looking at me. But then we get to the moment in the ceremony where I'm going to ask them to make promises to each other. And what do I do? I have them face each other. And you have the groom here facing his wife-to-be. And you have the bride here facing her husband-to-be. And what do they do? They promise to each other. They vow to each other. In sickness and in health, they say, till what? Till death do us part. And then I get the privilege. I love this part, right? Because I stand here and I say, in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What God has joined together. Do you hear that? What God has joined together. Marriage is God's idea. Sex is God's good idea. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Amen. That is what unlocks God's gloriously good gift of sex. Nothing else. Your serious relationship doesn't unlock it. Your strong feelings of love don't unlock it. Swiping right doesn't unlock it. Your promise ring doesn't unlock it. Your engagement ring doesn't unlock it. Your living together in the same home doesn't unlock it. None of these unlock the gloriously good gift of sex within God's design. Only your wedding vows and the pronouncement of you as husband and wife unlock this gift. And I I do not claim to perfectly understand that. There's so much within God's design that I don't perfectly understand because I'm not God. But neither are you. And so while it might not make perfect sense to us, God's design for sexuality is that you do have to be fully married to have sex. So let me extend an invitation to you, whether your wedding day is next week or next year. If it's not already there, bring your sexuality back under the banner of God's good design. Commit to God's good no until you are married. And actually, let's throw the doors wide open on that invitation, right? Everyone and anyone, no matter what your story is, related to sexuality, friends, one and all this morning, if your sexuality is not already there, consider it bringing it back under the banner of God's good design. Commit to his good no, trusting him that as the designer, he knows what is best. That's the invitation this morning. Will you accept We started by seeing the incredible truth that Adam and Eve felt no shame related to their sexuality. And too often, when when churches have preached messages on sexuality, they've started with shame, they've had shame tucked into the middle, and they've ended with it too. But not here, not today, not this morning, because God's design is too good and too beautiful to let shame have the final word. God's grace is too big. His forgiveness is too lavish. His restorative power is too effective. In this place, this morning, shame will not have the last word. And ultimately, shame will not have the last word because God's Savior is too perfectly perfect. Jesus, the most fully human person to ever walk this earth, even though he didn't have sex, he came to live to die and to rise again so that he could stand in the gap created by our sexual brokenness. Because there is a gap, isn't there? Of course. But it is never a gap too wide that Jesus cannot bridge it. And it is never a gap that is too late either. No matter what your story is this morning, God can bring about restoration. God can bring about redemption. Church, you need to hear the good news this morning that Jesus came to live, to die, and rise again, not just for your sin generally, though he did do that, but he came to live, die, and rise again for your sexual sin specifically. I needed that this week. Do you? And now, right? Where's Jesus now? He's reigning by the Father's side in glory, and he offers us a better way, a better life, and not just generally, But specifically, Jesus offers a better way for your sex life. 
Do you believe that this morning? I hope you do. I pray that you do. I trust that you will. Sex is God's good idea. Let's ask him to help us live under the banner of his good design. Pray with me.